Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast, and I'm your host, Osman Mughal. Today, I'm speaking with Kari Gersheimer, Chief Executive of Access Social Care, an organisation which provides free legal advice to people with social care needs, helping them to achieve a better quality of life. In this conversation, we touch on a wide range of topics, including the ways in which Access supports its beneficiaries, the partners it works with, how it aims to work with a wide range of communities and the impact of COVID-19 on both the organisation and its service users, including the highlights of the last year, as well as some key learnings. I also asked Kari, what are her key tips on being a successful and effective leader? And we touch on the importance of emotional well-being in the workplace. This podcast is sponsored by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. And here's my conversation with Kari. Thank you so much for joining Kari and it's a pleasure to have you on Charity Chat today. Before we delve into the work of Access Social Care, I wanted to get some of your insight into the different roles that you've held prior to your current role as Chief Executive and also what attracted you to the charity sector. So thanks so much for having me on Charity Chat, Asmin. It's really great to to speak to you this evening. Um, So what roles did I have? I've got a very varied background, I suppose. Um, I initially trained and qualified as a corporate lawyer, but very swiftly realised that that career wasn't for me. Um, And... um, went off and did a bit of volunteering actually for a BC for the British Columbia Human Rights Coalition and for a refugee agency in Canada and realized that really what I wanted to do was use my legal um, qualifications for good. Um, So I came back um, to the UK and um, did a a master's in human rights law and worked as a fundraiser actually for a fundraising agency and got to know the third sector that way and really quickly recognised that actually one way that I could use human rights law domestically was in the social care setting Um, and I started working for SENSE um, initially as a policy um, lead and, and then eventually set up a legal team at SENSE before moving um, with my team to MENCAP um, and then to set up Access Social Care. So what attracted me to the sector? Um, I think really it's about trying to make a positive difference in the world and um, social justice. That's brilliant to hear, Carrie, and the wide range of experience that you bring to the sector. And do you feel those different roles, being within fundraising, being within the policy team, and now as chief executive, all that has prepared you well for your current role in terms of the activities and tasks that you're responsible for? Definitely. I think it's, um, I think it's been really helpful to have that understanding of fundraising, um, but also the influencing work, um, given that we, we see ourselves as as a legal organisation, but also as a campaigning organisation that's trying to drive system change and having that kind of spectrum of experience has been really helpful. And I wanted to ask you also, what does a day in the life look like as chief executive of Access Social Care? What are your main 
responsibilities on a day-to-day basis and I'm, I'm sure you'll probably say that no day is ever the same but just wanted to get a bit of insight into to what that might look like. Sure. So I, I think actually the mental picture that I have in my head is, is somebody juggling. Um, and I'm sure lots of chief execs would um, be able to relate to that. So, I, I mean, it could be anything from speaking to funders to thinking about strategic communications and influencing work. At the moment, um, one of my main focuses is thinking about growth. So how can we as an organisation meet the growing demand for our services and how do we want to organise ourselves? What are the infrastructures we want to have in place and how do we want to make decisions as a, as a collective, as a, as a group of people that have become an organisation? So um, at the moment, I'm having lots of meetings um, with my team and seeking advice externally from people that are much wiser than I am about how you you organise um, people within organisations. And, and so that's a lot of my focus is on that at the moment. Great. And that leads us nicely on to the next section, Carrie. For those that haven't heard of the organisation, because I understand it's relatively new, what does the organisation do and what's the vision for the organisation for the future? So every day in this country, millions of older and disabled people are denied the social care that they need. Most local authorities in this country can't meet the growing demand for care. And in fact, none are confident that they're going to meet their legal duties in the future. So a staggering 96% of um, directors of adult social care have admitted that they're, they're, they're not confident that they'll meet their legal duties to provide care. Now that affects all of us. We'll all need social care at some point. Um, And and we all have the right to hold public bodies to account when things go wrong. But unfortunately, most of us can't afford lawyers. And so we rely on legal aid. Now, what's happened to legal aid when it comes to social care and, and community care is that since 2010, there's been an absolutely staggering 92% drop in the number of legal aid cases brought on. And and so people have nowhere to turn. And what we say is that, you know, without access to justice, our rights don't exist and and the rule of law is broken. So Access Social Care wants to help with that problem. Um, And we provide free legal advice for people with social care needs to help them achieve a better quality of life, to help them get the social care that they have a right to. Such an important area of work that, you know, is often overlooked. Could you explain a little bit more and delve in a little bit more detail, Carrie, as what particular programmes or initiatives your organisation provides and how it helps um, your beneficiaries? Sure. So, so we have a membership model. We connect our legal expertise to other organisations through a subscription based membership um, arrangement. Um, so other organisations pay us a fee and we deliver three things. The first thing is all about helping people, whether that's people with social care needs or staff within social care providing organisations or helpline organisations. We help people understand that the law is there for all of us and to help people have confidence around using the law to secure better outcomes. So I think, unfortunately, for many years, there's been uh, this kind of concept of, of lawyers being, you know, 
um, fat cats or, you know, enemies of the people um, and the law being something that's practiced by people in funny wigs in, in courtrooms. But actually, we believe that, you know, you can use the law really positively early on to um, to solve problems. And actually, the law belongs to all of us. So that's our first work stream. That's all about kind of public legal education and, and building confidence in using the law. The second work stream is all about helping as many people as we can with our legal support. So we, we buy in legal caseworkers with our membership subscriptions. We have arrangements with um, 150, about 150 lawyers who give their time to us pro bono. Um, so we work with some great city law firms, Field Fisher, um, Oric, Shermans, and, and um, we, we also work with, um, you know, with barristers chambers. We work with, um, with 39 Essex um, and, um, and, and others. So they give their time to us um, for free. And, um, and we're also developing a legal chatbot. So um, this is kind of an automated legal brain that gives um, legal advice for free 24 seven. Um, and, and so that's a kind of the high volume legal help. The third work stream is all about recognizing that really it's quite hard to change the world one case at a time. So we capture data about our work and we help other organizations collaborate to, around the use of data to evidence that there are issues around unlawful behavior when it comes to social care. So we and then we do evidence based casework and evidence based influencing work using that data. Great. Thanks, Carrie. That's a really uh, robust and clear explanation of the different types of areas of your work. And I now want to turn to COVID-19 and how that has impacted your organisations and the people that you work with. You've already mentioned that since 2010, there's been significant cuts in legal aid, which you know, have impacted your beneficiaries even before COVID-19 and COVID-19 no doubt has magnified those issues, those problems as well. So I just want you to kind of paint a picture of what, how COVID-19 really has impacted your organisation, particularly being a new organisation and also the beneficiaries and the people that you work with. So in a way, we've been very, very fortunate when it comes to how we've been impacted as an organisation. Um, we had a cloud-based model anyway, so it almost feels like the world has adjusted to our way of working um, over the pandemic and, and being able to do a lot of our work online. Um, we've also been very fortunate because we benefit from a, a, a grant that's helped us set up as an, as an independent organisation. And so we haven't, unlike lots of charities, had to worry about cash flow. Um, and I suppose because, um, we work with older people and disabled people. Of course, demand for our service has grown um, over the last year. And I think um, we've seen a, an increase in demand for our membership arrangement. So I think there's a recognition that um, as local authorities budgets are even more um, you know, difficult, it's becoming even more difficult for, for local authorities to balance their books. Um, more people are being deprived of the social care that they have a right to. And um, our member organisations are recognising that there's an even greater need for the service that we offer. 
So in that sense, we, you know, organisationally, we, we've been very fortunate. When it comes to our beneficiaries, I think, you know, it's, it, it has been widely documented that um, there's been a growth in need for social care during the pandemic. Um, we know that um, people seeking advice about social care, that the numbers have also grown. So we've been, um, we've been leading a data project in partnership with MENCAP and Carers UK and Age UK um, and Independent Age. We have um, universally, we've created a universal code and we've matched the codes of all of those helplines to um, our universal codes. And what we know from then looking at the data from all of those helplines is that um, the demand for social care advice has increased by nearly 300% over the last 12 months. So um, there's, there's a kind of, you know, no, no doubt in my mind that, that there's a real need for, for, for what we have to offer. Um, and we've seen when it comes to how have our beneficiaries been impacted, there have been all sorts of human rights issues that have arisen during the pandemic from, you know, um, visiting rights, you know, to see loved ones through to access problems with access to healthcare. Um, and, and so we've been really actively trying to to work around those issues. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what are the, the key challenges or opportunities that you've learned as a result of COVID-19 that will take you forward in order to help support and forward the interests of your beneficiaries in the future? So I think um, if, I, if I reflect back, one of the um, key learnings really is that I think there's a long way to go for social care to achieve parity of esteem with healthcare. Um, and, and even now, you know, as, as we speak, I think it, there's lots, there've been lots in the news today about the likelihood that social care reform is, is going to be delayed again um, and that it might not appear in the Queen's speech next week. So I, I think that's one of the, the key things. It feels like there's a lot of work still to do, but I really believe that the law can help. So that, that's the first thing that, that kind of came to mind. And the second thing I think is, and, and I'm sure that, you know, there's been a lot of, of reports about how um, black and Asian and minority ethnic um, groups and communities ha have been worse affected by the pandemic. So we knew already that there were, um, you know, there was a disparity and a lack of equality when it came to health and social care outcomes. But I think it's really placed a huge emphasis on, on that. And I think that creates uh, a duty actually on organisations like ours to think about how we are going to reach people within those communities and how we're going to work more effectively with black and Asian and minority um, organisations that you know user-led organisations that that um, traditionally maybe we haven't managed to reach um, and so we've worked really hard over the last year actually to think about how how we can pivot to serve those communities more effectively. And I'm really, really excited by, by the work that we're doing. And I just want to delve into that a little bit more, Carrie, in terms of how you're planning to go about doing that. Because as you say, um, the Black, Asian and minoritized ethnic communities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And we know that there were disparities in terms of access to justice and in other areas of society for particular groups. How are you looking to engage with those communities 
more meaningfully in the future? What's the roadmap in how you can make that a reality? So I think the, the first thing that's, that we identified was that we have a membership model. It works really well for, for large organisations that can afford our fees. But how are we going to reach some of those smaller user-led organisations that couldn't afford to, to join us? So the first thing that we did was identify funders to subsidise membership to enable us to work with, um, with some of those groups. And then I think the second thing is um, building trust. So we are a white-led organisation. Um, we've had to look really carefully at our internal processes around building diversity. And um, I'm, I'm really delighted that we have, um, we've worked really hard on our recruitment policies. We've looked at our board. We've looked at how we um, behave internally, the language that we use um, and how we continuously learn. So how, um, as leaders and, and, and as peers, actually, we can create an environment where we're positively challenging each other and ourselves to get better. So that's the first thing. Um, but then also, I think it's about um, creating a space and creating an equality between us and the organisations that we want to work with. So in the Southwest, we've we've got a place based hub. We're, we're funded by an organisation called the Barnwood Trust, who are subsidising us to work with um, local groups. Um, and I think we're, we're going really slowly because we need to understand the cultural, ethnic and, and hyper local issues um, to enable us to work effectively with those communities as equal partners so that we're not going in sort of you know explaining what people to do need to do but actually we're learning ourselves um, about how we need to adapt um, to, to, to work with those those organizations and those communities and you know informal and formal leaders within those communities. That's really refreshing to hear particularly your point around gaining trust in communities but also learning from communities and making sure that you're working together on an equal footing, um, because I think that's vital in order to gain trust as well. You, you've mentioned a little bit around the different partners that you're working with. And it seems to me the model that you've created is working with partners, whether that be with barristers, whether that be with solicitors, whether that be with funders, you're creating a model where you're trying to provide a holistic support package to your beneficiaries. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about not only the different partners that you work with, which you've already mentioned, but how important is that partnership working in order to further the aims and ambitions of the organisation? So I think it's fair to say that partnership and collaboration is absolutely core to what we do. Um, and I see us um, creating constellations and networks, and I hope that those constellations and networks will build um, across the country we're stronger um, together. You know, it's, it's a, um, it, it's a well-known adage, but I really believe it. And I think that you know, if, it, if we can work together and if we can collaborate, then I think that we can reimagine the social care system and the access to justice system. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's core. Cool. And I also want to now turn to what is the vision for the future for the organization at Access Social Care? What do you want to see in two, three and five years time um, in terms of how do you want to not only improve the lives of your beneficiaries, but the wider topic of so access to social care and access for people getting the support that they deserve and, and dignity at the same time? 
So we're working towards a future where social care is adequately funded and people can live the lives of their choice, actually, um, within communities because they've got the social care and the support that they need to be able to, to have that choice. Um, as an organisation, what's apparent is that we need to grow. <laughs> um, we need to um, make sure that more people are able to um, to access their right to social care and that they're able to hold public bodies to account when things go wrong. Um, but I think when it comes to how we do that, we are an organisation that collaborates. And, and I believe that by working positively with public bodies, we're going to achieve system change. So really part of our, our thinking is that if we can grow and if we can um, help more people to see the law um, as being a solution, and if we can help more people within communities to feel confident around using the law and confident around using our data to do evidence-based influence work locally, then local people can really drive that grassroots change by working with decision makers in a positive collaborative way to reimagine social care that's really um, I suppose that's our vision um, I, I think ultimately we have a dream that um, people will know that they can come to access social care if there is a problem and we can help put it right it's a very really clear and crisp vision and mission statement and something that I wanted to ask you is what's one thing that you're most proud of in the last year and so and what is one thing that you will do differently? What am I most proud of? I think it has to be the team. I mean my team have they've worked so hard in the last year everybody has mucked in we're a new organization we started operating on the 1st of April so right in the middle of the pandemic and um, as a team, we've we've worked our socks off. We've grown from 14 people to nearly 25 people um, in the last 12 months. We've had extraordinary fundraising success in that time. But importantly, we have helped hundreds of people get the social care that they have a right to. We have a 98% success rate with our cases. Um, and that's absolutely down to the, the valiant um, and often, um, you know, going over and above um, f f from all of the members of, of the access team. So that that definitely has to be um, my number one. Um, sorry, and you said, what was the second question? What would we do differently? Yeah, what would you do differently um, if you were to kind of do the last year or so again? My team would tell me to slow down. Um, <laughs> um, but, but that's always hard, isn't it, when you feel like you're achieving things. But I, I, I can hear my team in my, in my ear. <laughs> and you mentioned that you've had tremendous success over the last 12 months, particularly on the fundraising side. And that's allowed you to support hundreds of, of different beneficiaries. Could you give an example of how, a practical example of how you've helped beneficiaries? Of course. So, um People who have social care needs experience unlawful decisions in, in many different ways. Um, sometimes that's about delaying putting social care in place, and sometimes it's about denying putting social care in place. So, and sometimes it's about not following the correct 
processes and procedures. So um, a, a, a typical example is um, when somebody's social care needs increase. So that might have happened during the pandemic because somebody fell ill and, and all of a sudden, for example, they might need support at night time and previously they haven't had it. Um, and so a local authority might delay carrying out an assessment or they might delay putting that, that support in place because they're strapped for cash. And, um, you know, if you can delay, then um, then it holds off your your um, your duty to, to to put social care in place. So we um, we have challenged that successfully. We've prevented cuts to social care. So there was one instance where a local authority was threatening to reduce everybody's social care packages by 50 percent in a care home. And we managed to stop that cut from happening. Um, we worked in another environment where there was an elderly gentleman who um, was being told that he had to move into a cheaper um, placement. He'd lived in that home for 20 years with his care team. And, um, you know, the local authority were trying to move him out very swiftly without following the right processes and procedures into a, a different accommodation that wasn't suitable to meet his needs. Um, and, and, you know, that's it. We see that quite frequently. So and, and we were able to stop that and or slow it down in some instances and prevent that move from happening in an unlawful way. Yeah, great examples. And I, I assume that makes all the work that you do behind the scenes worth it. I think it's fair to say that I work with an extraordinarily passionate team. I'm very, very fortunate to, to, to work with the people that um, I work with. I'm, I feel privileged, really. Um, at, to do the work that we do and and yes I mean it, it, it hopefully the passion for the work is it comes through I think we really do um, love our work it definitely comes through and I also wanted to touch a little bit on leadership as CEO you've made it very clear that you've got an amazing team at Access and you're working with them and and, and it seems like the culture and is very supportive and collaborative what have you learned as a leader over the past 12 months and what top tips could you provide our listeners in what makes an effective and successful leader, particularly during the turbulent times that we've seen in the past 12 months? So what have I learned? I think that one of the most important roles that I play in active social care is creating an environment where people can do their job effectively and creating an environment where um, we can make good decisions and, and that people feel empowered to make good decisions um, where work is fun, um, but that where work is um, is effective. And I think that um, as a leader, sometimes there's a time when, you know, you have to direct, but actually a lot, most of the time, um, part the, the, the most effective leaders, I think, are the people that helping everybody to lead in their own way one of the things that um, I've I've got from that is the importance of empowerment to let people in your team who are experts in their area to do their job and to remove the barriers that stand in front of their way but allow them to express themselves and perform because that's what they're experts in and you know quite often the best leaders generally enable that to happen and I think, you know, I've, you know, speaking to a, quite a lot of leaders over the last couple of months, and I have, I've had that privilege. And one of the things that struck me is that they've mentioned 
the point around humility in the last 12 to 15 months. We're facing a global pandemic and we haven't faced a global pandemic like this or or to this extent for, for many, many years. And it's new to everybody. And that humility, knowing that when you don't have all the answers or saying that we don't actually know what the answer is, but we're going to figure it out together and supporting one another through that journey is really important as well. Because I think often we see CEOs and leaders as people that have all of the answers, but quite often those leaders are able to work with their teams around them in order to develop effective ideas as opposed to having all the ideas themselves. I think that's it, spot on. I think the other thing I would say is that um, obviously during the pandemic, most of my staff team are, are women and most of us are parents with young children. So we have um, quite literally been thrown into a situation where we are bringing our whole selves to work because we have our children in the background um and you know we, we've, we've been managing these these really intense um periods at work and and I think that um one of the things that's really shone through for me is the importance of looking after everybody's well-being and really placing huge um importance on that at work um, and, and I suppose that's one of the things that I feel really proud of that we've, we've managed to do with. And you know, it's, it's been a, a really challenging year for many people in, in their personal lives. And I, I think as an organisation, we've worked really, really hard to try and um, as much as we can support our staff with with that um, with that journey. Yeah, yeah. Spot on, Carrie. I completely agree with you. The issue around well-being of staff has always been in the background um, and has come to the fore in the last, you know, five, seven years, I would say. But particularly because of COVID-19, because it's affected everybody in some way, the importance of emotional well-being in terms of how you support your staff has become increasingly important. And I'm glad that it has been because you can only perform in your day-to-day job if you're you feel that you are able to. Um, and an organisation has the responsibility to support its staff in that. So it's fantastic to see that your organisation is doing that and empowering your staff at the same time. Um, and we'd like to end with two quick questions, Carrie. And the first one is, what is your main frustration about the sector? And please be as honest as you <laughs> wish to be. And secondly, what do you love about the sector? So I, I suppose I'll start with what do I love? Um, it feels good to start with the positive. I love the collaboration and, uh, and I love the, the kind of the passionate people that I've had the privilege of, of working with. I've benefited from a, a lot of support from mentors, as well as um, support from my peers and, um, and people that, um, that are within my organisation. And, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. Um, it brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction. Um, frustration I suppose it's not really about the sector it's more about the fact that at, at what we haven't managed to achieve yet is um, convincing the treasury to hand over more money for social care um, and, and I suppose you know funding of social care is a really complex problem but I think there's almost universal agreement that it's underfunded and that has a real and ongoing impact on people's lives and, and really I suppose the time is now. I think we need to help the public to understand what social care is and why it needs to be funded. And I think that we need to hold government to account. 
absolutely completely agree with you everyone agrees that it's been underfunded and people are living longer now and so the importance of having a well-funded social care model is going to become increasingly important um, down the line and it's not a quick fix it's not an easy fix but I think if there is political will um, coupled with the fact that there is um, an understanding that it is underfunded I think change can be made um, and I know that your organization will will advocate for that as well and in terms of what you love about the sector I couldn't agree more it's definitely the people it's definitely the collaboration and we're very privileged to work in a sector where everybody wants to support each other um, despite that we're from different organizations even different causes you know I've worked in the sector for around eight eight years now and just messaging people, contacting people, networking with people. People are so happy to and willing to share their stories and their journeys and how they can support each other. So it's definitely something that, um, you know, time and time again, a lot of people in our sector do mention as, as the best thing to be in it. I'm nodding away in the background. Yeah, it's um, definitely, definitely, as I, mean, I, I really agree. It's been really great speaking to you and to hear about the organisation and the work that you do. And I'm really looking forward to all of the things that you will achieve um, in the next 12 months and, and beyond. Thanks so much, Esmond. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It was an absolute delight speaking with Kari today and her passion and enthusiasm for her work shone through. If you'd like to find out more about the work of Access Social Care, please visit them on www.accesscharity.org.uk and give them a follow on Twitter at AccessCharity1. Thanks for listening, and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aximit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images, and Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now 